Hello and welcome to Desert Isolation Discs. Thank you very much for listening. This is the show in which I cheekily rip off a familiar format to bring you the indispensable tunes of some of my favourite people. You can find a full archive of previous interviews on the podcast feed, on ACAST or on the website desertisolationdiscs.blogspot.com. If you have suggestions for great guests or are interested in appearing yourself, drop me a line on Twitter. I'm at Alex Shadowplay. My guest today takes the podcast to new highbrow heights, and the show itself was recorded amongst his hordes of books in his office at Birkbeck, which is part of the University of London where he teaches creative writing. Toby Lit was first published in 1996 and has spent numerous novels, short stories, and essays since discussing matters of life, death, and most importantly, music. I love his books, and I can't wait for you to listen to this one. He once said, To write competently is to do a few magic tricks for friends and family. To write well is to run away and join the circus. So let's have a listen to this literary trapeze artist. Hello. <laughs> Thank you for inviting me into your office here at Birkbeck. <laughs> you're, you're more than welcome. Many have passed through. <laughs> Now, I realise that this isn't a very fair task for me to ask of you, actually, because reading your blog, uh, I remember back in the summer, you said that um, you enjoy listening to music, particularly at other people's homes, and that really lifts it for you. Now, I'm casting you out into the desert and saying you're only allowed a few of them. Uh, how, how did you approach this, uh, this task? Well, the things that I've chosen are the life support recordings probably that they have a function but but um when we get to each of them there'd be a reason but i found it quite easy in the sense that i wasn't trying to convince anyone i wasn't saying these are the best or or, you know i wasn't trying to pick a a list that was in any way um uh to to do with communicating it was just okay if i think back to what i've played the most Mm. Um, on my iPod um, and what do I turn to the most uh, then it's it's pretty simple that I put in a couple of uh, oddities and one of the reasons I love your writing is that you are quite obviously passionate about music what part does music play in your life now when when do you listen to music well all the time really um there's a bit of a battle in our kitchen between Radio 3 and Radio 4, and I'm the Radio 3 person. That's what I would put on first thing in the morning. And I sometimes have nothing playing when I'm writing, but most of the time I have something, either just to um, cover over things that are likely to be distracting in the background. Mm. So I used to lo- listen to a lot of what got called glitch, but, but sort of non-rhythmical electronica. So I knew that there would occasionally be bumps yeah. and, and, and clashes and things, but that they weren't um, obtrusive because I was expecting silence. You know, yes. I'm, not, I'm not expecting silence. So I have a lot of work music mm. and I have playlists and I use Deezer. Uh, so tell us about your opening track. Well, um, Penny Lane, Strawberry Fields, The Beatles, which I have on vinyl, which I'm pretty sure my dad would have bought when it came out. Mm. So it's the family copy, and I got the family vinyl. Essentially, it, it, it's something that I heard in my childhood. It's about childhood, and now when I hear it, 
and hearing it years later and what's odd is that it w it wasn't a wasn't brand new but it was pretty new mm. when i would have first heard it let's mm. as let's assume um it was in the house and, and i was a, a, a toddler or something i it, it i was born in 68 so it, it was a year or two old and when i first played it on myself on a record player i'd have been about 10 maybe mm. and now it's so much further in the past and then you've got the the other side you flip the the thing and the world turns upside down and 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 you've got paul mccartney's much more sort of public and 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 chirpy view of things mm. and I, and and to me it's it's a it's a beautiful sort of infinite loop that i could sit there and turn from one to the other yeah and i used to argue with myself which is better you know Lennon <laughs> McCartney which which song do I like best which which view of the world and I think the thing is that it's almost in the in the turning over it's the point at which you, you you're accepting that they're, they're both there mm. um, but I it, it, to get even more I think in a way to do anything in writing that was equivalent mm. to the the complete um, oddity and very amorphous sort of uh, world of Strawberry Fields and the catchy and personable side of, of Penny Lane and to have that within one thing and the, the satisfaction of, of it being for everyone mm. um, to, to do something, anything that came close to that would be success as far as I'm concerned in, in, in any form of art but I'm not sure if you can because it was this particular moment in the 60s and mm. uh, and and all the things so shall I play it Absolutely. let me take you down cause I'm going to strawberry One of the things the Beatles meant to me when I was little, putting the records on, on the, on, on the sort of portable record player, mm. was that there were certain moments which really scared me almost in a horror movie way and that there's a bit in there and it's this kind of sliding sound yeah it's very acid but it's almost as if the whole world is melting so toby i'm interested in the relationship between your two great loves of music and writing and obviously you wrote uh you've written about music a lot but particularly um fantastic novel and um i play the drums in a band called okay great book absolutely love it do you approach that process in a particularly different way than you would writing about any other subject or uh, is it a case of drawing on experience? I th with that it's a case of drawing on inexperience and, <laughs> and, and absolute um, yearning to have been what, what I wasn't which, mm. which would be uh, in a band that was successful to do very little else certainly when they're young than, than be in a band. Mm. I wouldn't have chosen to be the drummer um i uh i was a guitarist and 
when I was at school or mm. even, you know, at the age of sort of nine or ten, that's that was a really big focus. Me and me and my friends were in bands uh we called one was called Senator, the Psychic Arabs, um one one was called uh <laughs> the Unhip. And um, what kind of style would you describe it? Uh, Senator were kind of prog. Yeah. They were all different. We, mm-hmm. we, we had a different style for each name, and sometimes we'd invent three new bands in an afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> um, what were you like as a teenager? What, what, oh. would you, what would you find you doing at that time? Well, in my room, um, I, I went from state school to private school at the mm. age of 11, and so I'd been just one of the kids at state school and I, I don't think that class or the kind of house my parents lived in or that kind of stuff had much effect and mm. I'm, I'm not saying that come me being 13 or 14 it wouldn't have come into play but there was a very definite division in my life yeah. between um, primary and middle school and secondary school and where I lived, which was Ampthill in Bedfordshire, mm. if you went to private school, you were posh. Right. It meant that immediately. So I went to being, from being just someone in the class who no one had paid much attention to, to being posh immediately. But it also meant that I couldn't really be out. Now, obviously, if I was 11 or 12, I, I wasn't going to be in the pub. <laughs> but um, really, it wasn't a good idea just to be out <laughs> um, and the older you got the, the the more extreme that became I did go to a school disco uh, not a school disco, a scout hut disco yeah. once with some friends from my school we were about 15, 16 and we were into new romantics and yeah. we dressed up a lot, we had eyeliner on we had makeup, drawn coat hangers on our face and, things. <laughs> and um, pixie boots and uh, I had hair and we we um, we were big hit with the Amptill girls. They'd seen nothing like this. And yeah. they, they, they quite liked the uh, kind of gender-bending thing. <laughs> and I was there with uh, my very good friend Adam and some a couple of other boys from the same public school. Mm. But we were in the wrong territory. And someone who was still friendly with me came up uh, during the disco and said, uh, I, I think you, you should leave, really. Um, so we did. He walked to the door and behind him, Adam and I sort of shadowed him and then we fled, <laughs> um, not able to get words to the other guys. One of them came in the next day to school and said, you, 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 you left, didn't you? I said, yeah, we got the word. He said, well, someone hit me with a baseball bat. Oh, my God. Um, for essentially for dressing up uh, in a new romantic way. So I was, at that time, I was avoiding the people with baseball bats and that meant that I had a lot of time in my room to do lots of things so I was drawing things I was uh, I made a hat once (laughs) (laughs) sewed I was sewing Uh, I was uh, listening to a massive amount of music Mm. and when I got my first proper stereo Mm. Uh, the first thing I played on it was this. Fantastic. Very Lot smoother than I was at 15.
fantastic pepper treat by the Cocktail Twins. Yeah, and um, I had a few records by them um, when I, when I was a teenager, and and they sort of do what did them what they do now, which is cocoon you in mm. in this incredible sound world and the, it's this extraordinary voice um, but particularly that one it has a kind of um, element like those BBC TV things where there were sort of children who got involved in some magical Victorian house yeah I grew up mm. in that world myself because my father was an antique dealer our house was full of old furniture mm. but also that my first five years were spent above an antique shop in, mm. a, in a small flat before my parents were able to afford to buy a house that that's where we lived so in a way being around a lot of old stuff that changed all the time because it was being sold or bought and sometimes um you know the, a, a label would appear on something <laughs> a sold label mm. and it would disappear from our lives and then another thing would appear in its place that that was very usual for me mm. so uh, i think i find something in there um the iconography of them although i think what someone coming to them now would hear is sort of big 80s drums and and uh, but but i i what i hear is a kind of attempt to do a wall of sound mm. and then in the middle of it to have very vulnerable extremely uh quirk, quirky strong voice but but a voice that that doesn't sound like any other voice mm. uh, and that i don't care about the words but i feel extremely sort of loved by the music and, mm. and protected by it so i want to talk about your writing incredible body of work that you created Famously, you uh, title your books in alphabetical order, but far more interesting than yeah. that. <laughs> um, we can get beyond that. Um, they're on such a broad um, set of subjects. You know, I indulged myself in rereading some of my favourites of yours in the last few weeks. Um, and it always strikes me the breadth of subjects you cover, whether it's um, music and rock and roll, whether it's uh, ghost stories or, or um, lesbian chat forums, you manage to find a good breadth of uh, stories. And, and obviously, because you write so many short stories, you manage to sort of crowbar in plenty of different things. Yeah. Is that a conscious thing that you set out to do? So many writers only write in a certain style or about certain subjects? I don't know if it's... It wasn't conscious to start with, I think. Mm. Um, partly it's music-related again, mm. um, but not not maybe with a neat segue, which is that mm. um, my idea of what an artist should do, I think, was very formed by Bob Dylan and, and David Bowie, mm. and and uh, Bowie, and the, and I I think I I um, liked the idea that an artist was new with each new work, and that they they committed not to a consistent identity, but to um, identities that, that that each time they were fully inhabiting, but that they'd leave behind. Mm. In a way, if you look at say Leonard Cohen, he's he's more like a one yeah. Dylan persona mm. um, for a whole career. Not uh, and and he's the sort of vertical yeah. the going going for the depth, whereas Dylan is maybe the horizontal. Mm. Um, and I, so for for me, 
um, it's partly boredom and boredom with with the self but also a sense that that's the that's the job mm. and there are other artists like picasso or the, who who are who are protean and that means that they need to uh, engage in metamorphosis in order for the the next thing to happen mm. because they 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 can't redo art they can't redo the next thing by being the same person because it's it's about seeing where the, the person you are is going to go next that's yes. that's that's the the job and i i envy but i don't want to be the people who have a very consistent uh identity because it makes them very easy to identify and um for people to go there mm. for a thing so i'm reading a Lee Child novel, Make Me, at the moment, which is the one that there's a book about, which is mm. called Reacher Said Nothing. And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of using them to, to teach with. And, and if you go to Lee Child, you know what you're going to get. Mm. He, can, he can move things around a bit in each book, but essentially same main character, same voice. Um, and you can go to that for the same kind of security and reassurance I found in the Cocteau Twins, even if yeah. it's about murder and, and nasty things going on. And it, this is ritual reading. It's exactly the same for horror fiction as it is for romance. Yes. Um, but I find that, that what I end up doing is literally herring around. I'm interested, Toby, what, what does being a professional author in 2016 actually entail you know it's, it's seen as a very sexy career as it were and people don't, uh, and yes, don't quite understand what it takes to to get published uh, but what does it actually mean for you on a practical level uh, does it get any easier no that's not special pleading mm. I, I think um all uh royalty dependent or mm. ad advanced dependent uh, writers, musicians, whatever, they are having a, a, a time where the world is being scrambled and, mm. and, and it hasn't settled, it's, it's, it's not settling. Um, and so most of us are unsettled in, in, in that way. I mean, I have a, you're in my office, mm. I, I, I have a, a half, a 0.5 teaching job and mm. that, that's part of the answer. Part of the answer is that I... I teach and I talk about being a writer and I do uh, this and that, yes. which are, are not prose fiction, so it's not a short story or it's not a novel. So mm. I did a comic called Dead Boy Detectives for 12 yeah. months. I did a, a graphic novel which was completing something Neil Gaiman started uh, a long time ago, which came out as um, you know, Children's Crusade, which is... Uh, very interesting fitting bits in uh, and I've also written song lyrics and yes. a libretto for a full length opera now that, uh, there are people who probably hear that and just think wanker or show off or, uh, <laughs> but I think most writers now um, can't just be in a, in a groove of producing one thing yeah. my life would have been easier <laughs> if I'd rewritten the same book. Uh, 
I always think I think of Stevie Nicks. Stevie Nicks on her solo albums used to do a sort mm. of uh, country-ish song, and I always felt Stevie was hedging her bets <laughs> that, that if if the whole kind of touring again with Fleetwood Mac thing <laughs> fell through, yeah, that she would just go full on country. Yeah. So, what's your next track that you've got for us, Toby? Uh, this one's Nick Drake. Time has told me. Time has told me You're a rare, rare find Trouble cure For a troubled mind Time has told me To ask for more For someday our ocean Will find its shore That was, uh, that was fantastic to enjoy listening to uh, Nick Drake's Times Told Me whilst having Natter about him in the office, Toby. Um, what do you love about that song? For me... Uh, it's about falling in love with someone mm. um, and also staying with someone with se- sort of separate things. Mm. But I, there was someone I, I did once meet and I, I thought about them through that song. Mm. Um, and I think... Did you get uh, your heart broken too? Did, yes. <laughs> didn't, didn't. It was just, it was just falling in love uh, without... <laughs> any uh, special um, measures (laughs) he seems to be singing privately Mm. and because he was although he 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 was clearly working with you know John Cale and people like that but he he was not unknown but he's a discovery and even even now even if you know I'm even if someone heard him through seeing a Volkswagen ad on on YouTube they're, they're still feeling all right, he he is is speaking uh, about about things I understand, and mm. he's. I think the the more um, remarkable thing about him is that how English it is, yeah. how restrained it is, but he, he's almost the most blues um, artist I can think of in this in the way of the Robert Johnson sort of thing. Yeah. Being un- unapologetic about being English, a bit posh, yeah. very r- restrained, very pastoral. Although although I think one of the, you know mm. one of the albums is uh, is mm. kind of city London London album. But to to me it, it's um, train music. So I'm a guitarist. I, I would worship that that guitar playing is is completely unshowy yes but but completely unbelievable as as a as a technical feat Mm. um that he he was using really thick strings he was really weird time signatures he was sort of accompanying himself bass and treble lines and, and it sounds like the most beautiful flow yeah so um toby was that in your office at boatbeck I'm surrounded by hordes and hordes of books. They're great. You've talked me through your collection. An obvious question, but people talk about 
it being difficult to teach creative writing, mm. that task falls upon your shoulders. How do you approach this it? This evening, it's my first, <laughs> my first class with a new class. Mm. How, how do I approach it? I think that there are, are things that are very basic about writing that you can teach to a class which contains someone who wants to write a historical novel mm. set in the Elizabethan period, someone who wants to write a crime novel that gets to number one in W. E. Smith, yes. someone who wants to write something um, where you could call it experimental or avant-garde, someone mm. who wants to write something um, non-fictional and very confessional about themselves. Yeah. There, there are basic technical things, and to call them technical, but it... It's it, people immediately think, well, it's writing. What do you mean? It's not like taking mm. apart a car, but there there are elements of it that are taking apart a car, like, for example, point of view, mm. and there are a lot of rules and conventions to do with point of view that I I think are, are contemporary equivalent of writing in. Um, rhyming couplets for the 18th century and all the kind of elegancies Mm. that um, were expected of Pope and Dryden. Mm. Our equivalent of that is um, not shifting around randomly between first and third person, being consistent, Mm. um, having the reader know where the voice is in relation to them. Mm. You wrote a fantastic piece for The Guardian about bad writing. you You basically said that um, most bad writing was simply boring. Uh, I, how brutal are you with your students? Do you, do you tell them when it's boring? <laughs> um, I don't know if I've ever said that directly. This would be the room in which I said it, obviously, uh, mm, uh, when, when they're away from other people in the group. Mm. I, I think um, what, what you need to, to do is to engage writers that you're teaching or, or, mm. or talking to on the level of themselves as readers and and if you if you get them to read themselves mm. as if they hadn't written it and yeah. there's there's ways of doing that you can get them to read it aloud you can get someone to read it to them mm. um or, or you can say well you you you've told me that the thing that you most want to write is something a bit like this mm. well let's take the first three pages of that and let's take the first three pages, equivalent number of words of what you've done, and let's just see what's going on. And in almost all cases, the the published thing, the thing that is is the the, the desired kind of writing, mm. um, has more going on. But I honestly think that that I was terrible, boring, uh, unworthy of anyone's attention person when I started writing and that's why I wanted to write I mm. wanted to exist in words in a way that was more interesting than the way I existed in the world yes and I worked at it as hard as I could and I may I may have succeeded I may have not so what's your next piece of music my next one is uh, in time by Sly and the Family Stone because I need some fun <laughs> In the tasting of disaster And time You get faster Every if it is a waste As if it has to Procrastinating Such a 
Stone with In Time. Uh, what makes you love that one? Tim? The bass, the world of it. it again, it's it's about a, a sort of bubbling, um, slightly amorphous thing, but it, it's got it's got the funk, I and mean, it's obviously that's that's the rhythm. But also, every part of it is just coming in, not predictably and not starchily or anything, but but spontaneously to, to make a little contribution the horns the bass whatever mm. and and it and it all kind of big gumbo it's this big kind of massive sound mm. that you could dance to or, or, or that can sort of transport you and and that feeling that yeah the fu- the funk thing which is it's both fun mm. it's but it's funky. It's scary. It's it's um, something um, that that doesn't take itself seriously. I mean, if yeah. you can think of <laughs> exactly. George Clinton or those, those groups, I mean, they were absolute party bands, and they make they make kind of the village people who were ripping off the way they dressed mercilessly. <laughs> but they they make them look completely wild. They're descending to stage on spaceships and stuff, <laughs> saying something really, you know big in that a sort of Afro-futuristic way. So if, yeah. if I'm thinking about being uh, isolated and having no one around, I would need something to to dance to. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm um, keen to ask a question for the super fans and Toby, who've devoured all your work, as I'm sure plenty have. Uh, is there a particular novel or collection of writings that you look on with, re- with real pride that you're most proud of or that you have the biggest emotional connection to? I know... Obviously, I, ghost stories. Yeah, um, I think ghost story for me, um, maybe dead kid songs for other people. Mm. I, I don't know. Uh, that seems to be the dead kid song seems to be the one where people responses. Oh, it reminds me of growing up, mm. uh, and they have a very uh, big connection with it. In in a way that sometimes I find surprising, in that it will be. Uh, a woman and they say oh you know it reminds me of, of me, and, me and my friends who, yeah. were, who were girls and I wrote that book as a very male yes, book where the, the, the mother and the, and the families uh, are, are deliberately excluded almost mm. in the Tom and Jerry way where you only see the, the, the ankles and the, yeah. you never see the face you know. uh, the, it, it seemed to me it was about being a boy I, while I was re- writing it in the in the UEA library, I went up to finish it at, on the campus at UEA because I I'd done the creative writing course there, and I knew that there were these rooms. Mm. I, I'd had one of these rooms you could stay in for a bit. Um, in the library, I came across a a book about the boy book as a subgenre. Mm. Oh right, I didn't even know this this thing existed. Mm. Um, that's what I was trying to do, and I think I 
I put in, but also perverted a whole lot of stuff about my growing up. Yeah. Um, Ghost Story has the hair in it, uh, which which is a sort of story, but but also autobiographical, and that that's one of the things that I think is comes closest to doing what when I when I talk about writing in in say mutants so is is more obviously doing the thing I'm I'm I'm, I'm describing, mm. whereas I think some of the stories in Lifelike or um, I play the drums they're they're, they're fairly conventionally um, narrated they're, they're they're not experimental in form they're mm. they're more realist and and, um, and I I think there's there's those and then there's a few stories mm. this is a link I, I wrote a, um, a song words for a song um, called At the Edge of the Field which was recorded by a band called Lady Masery and yes. and in that song um, I I finally sort of identified something I'd been after for a long long time which was the idea of where do I want to be and it partly came from the train journeys and the listening to Nick Drake but also there's a uh, Nabokov has a paragraph about it in a short story um, about looking from a train and seeing the place you want to be and knowing that you're not there that you're on the train you're moving away from it even as you see it mm. and that where where is that place you know what what is it um, that looks so uh, that when you look at it, you think, "Oh, I would be happy there yeah. if I were not on this train." I mean, I'm happy on trains, but uh, and I realised that where I wanted to be was at the edge of a field. The, the places that fascinate me are are where the the field with the crops or the the crops that have been cut meets a sort of fence that's obviously broken or something, <laughs> and then goes into this dark. Mm. Thing and so I wrote. I wrote this song, and in a way, that that's the thing that I feel. Although it's very old-fashioned, it could be like a Walter de la Mare thing, or mm. isn't it? It's meant to be sung. Um, is where I think. Oh, right, that's where I was sort of heading, and I put in some of the things like the hair, um, uh, and it's meant to be the last song of a. Requiem, mm. which was written partly uh, for my mother, but m- who, who who died of cancer, but but more just as a as a requiem, you know, that people could use. But then uh, the idea was that it would be a domestic requiem, mm. that people could do it in their house, and that it starts with the singers outside. So they're a bit like carol singers, and the mm. first one song is sung outside, and then you. In, invite them in and, and the, by the end of the song they're in the living room or wherever they're going to sing the kitchen whatever yeah. and then then for the friends of the person who's died they they sing this requiem which is about memory and and that you could do it and people could speak in between sections mm. um but the end it's it's not really about uh going to heaven you know it's not a requiem mass to help someone get to heaven but that song is sort of about meeting and where where would you meet well it, it, and i i like the idea in the first line anyway at the edge of the field it could be from physics 
it could be the 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 edge of a magnetic field or something mm. like that but but you're you're at this transitional thing mm. that that's if you're going to meet someone uh who's dead who's a ghost then you'll meet them on the yeah. in the liminal space and and that's the edge of the field but um i was going to play a song that lady may's recovered by kate bush yes yeah. this woman's work i know you have a little life in you yet i know you have a lot of strength left i know you have a little life in you yet i know you have a lot of strength left it should be crying but i just can't let it show should be hoping but i can't stop thinking of all the things i should have said that i never said all the things we should have done that we never did all the things i should have given but i didn't oh darling make it go make it beautiful uh, so Toby we, we're coming towards the end here but I want to talk about what you're working on now you, I, I think you're up to P aren't you uh, in, in your alphabetical um, yes um, although uh, well uh, you're very clued in O, mm-hmm. o is will, should be another collection of stories mm. vowels being short stories um, P could be a number of things mm-hmm. but I'm working on at the moment, a non-fiction, non-alphabetical book, uh, which is about my great-great-great-grandfather, who was a champion mm. wrestler, Cum- Cumbrian wrestler. So uh, that's Wrestliana, and Galley Beggar will do that um, when when I finished it. Um, and but and it's your involved. grandmother was a quite a character as well. Wasn't yes, she, you, she you got quite a dynasty. She, but she she married a lit. She wasn't a lit. So mm. I'm, t- I'm t- talking about the the lit line and mm-hmm. the male line. No, my. My grandmother, who was called Gra in our family, mm. um, a, a sort of word I haven't really come across elsewhere, she lived to 105 and um, was born at the turn of the century, so every year was the year of her age. You know, 1914, mm. she was 14. Um, and she had a very good memory, and I did interview her about the beginning of the First World War because she was in the area, as they say. <laughs> she heard the, the opening salvos. She saw the first, um, or she heard anyway, the first uh, air war that, that ever took place. She was she was in a, a, a nunnery uh, being educated by Belgian nuns. And, and she uh, sort of wrote something about it in her diary. And when she came back to England, her father went out sort of got a train carriage to bring back all these um, convent girls mm. was on one of the last civilian trains out of out of the country because the Germans essentially were invading mm. and um, was at a hotel in London and a reporter came and said can we speak to your daughter about the, the start of the war in Europe and he said no she's too tired but here's her diary and it was published yeah. um, it was published both in the Blackpool newspaper and I think the New York Post mm. as a early report on the the war in Europe that obviously no one had any idea what it meant yes. but it was all very new mm. uh, particularly the idea that um, 
you know, someone had dropped from the sky in a, in a um, they'd been shot down or something, and, yes. uh, and that they were uh, being treated by the nuns, both both Germans and, and uh, Belgians, and so she gives a very clear eyewitness account of that, and then in a way that was her life's most exciting point yeah. and she married my grandfather and uh, quite at a very early age she also had a, a vulgar cruise through leninist russia but sadly <laughs> i didn't really get her on record i think she took the odd walk on the, in the russian countryside but but <laughs> she she was there um, very shortly after the revolution traveling yes. traveling down um to uh, Constantinople, I think. Mm. So, so she had this sort of amazing uh, life up until. Well, it's not that her life wasn't amazing, but she lived incredibly yeah. quietly mm. for the rest of her life, in basically in the same house for over eighty years. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, she was my Victorian. <laughs> I knew a Victorian. Um, and so, back to the podcast. Then. Yeah. So the uh, I'm been very cruel obviously cast you into the desert um but i am generous i'll give you the complete red dwarf box set the tiger came to tea that i'm please, sure will keep please, stimulate your I, literary mind can i swap it <laughs> do you um do you want any other luxuries i would like a loot <laughs> I've, i'm not great on the guitar but i do play it mm. but even if all the strings broke it would be nice to look at mm. and uh i i think it's got to be a useless thing and, <laughs> uh, and a genuine luxury the only other possibility would be an infinite jar of marmalade um but uh something that that seems to be a luxury even if you looked at it from a distance <laughs> rather than oh i could use this to hit something with that would that would be it great choice and and you've got a fantastic piece of music to to finish off um the podcast with haven't you i, I just want to say thank you so much for, for doing it. it's been fascinating to listen to you and uh, yeah what's your last no, choice thank you for letting me talk uh, about my, <laughs> it's what used to be my specialist subject um <laughs> i um came across uh this next uh not artist this singer um and composer is called Komitas, Gomitas, um, in a record shop in Yerevan in Armenia. I was there for the British Council. I was uh, doing something completely unconnected to music, but I did what I like to do, which is um, go and ask what the oldest recordings they have in wherever I am. Um, and this was one of the things they played. After they played us me some things from sort of the 1980s, <laughs> Um, this voice came through, and I ended up making a radio programme about him. In very, very sketchy terms, he had a, a life that was incredibly tragic and comitas. Mm. Uh, he was a priest. Um, he wrote down folk songs of uh, Armenians in the same way that Bartok did, and uh, uh, he transcribed them, and they're, they're an eerie place in between East and West. Mm. And... All of that would be entirely irrelevant if I didn't think that for the recorded sound and the voice and the intensity of it, this is the most powerful, but bluesy, um, 
soulful thing that I've ever heard. And um, in Journey into Space, I called my spaceship that was going off into nowhere, <laughs> the Armenia. <laughs> and that was for a reason. And when I was writing it, I was listening to Cometats to, to give myself the feeling of uh, uh, going off into big, big nothing. I can think of no better place to finish.